welcome to the Gen X Mixtape, a nostalgic podcast dedicated to the art of making mixtapes and the Gen Xers who made them. This is part two of Questions, where Alan and I will be curating side B of a mixtape filled with inquisitive song titles. Welcome back, Alan. Welcome back. Ah, side two. So, I don't know how this is going to compare with side one. Um, we learned a lot in, on side A. Well, yeah. I, and we learned about the, the clover turned into <laughs> Hugh Lewis in the news. Right. And that Mutt Lang can't sing. Yeah. Uh, we we <laughs> wanted so badly to include that on the alternates list when we are done with today's episode, but... Uh, it's yes. not on Spotify. It is not on Spotify. Super. Wait, I I don't blame Spotify. I would not have it on <laughs> on there either. We did find it on YouTube. That that, that was awful. It was. <laughs> you can horrible. hear the bones of the song. Do you believe in love? But you can see why Hugh Lewis in the News did not <laughs> want to record it initially. Yeah, absolutely. Um, no. It, it last week was just a fun episode, and you know when you look at the side A playlist as it currently is before we finish up here today that is why you sequence mixtapes because the, currently <laughs> the order of song oh it's wow <laughs> so um nonetheless it was it was fun i i i can't help myself i love this topic this one is just it's so much fun so i'm, I'm really looking forward to side b and you go first. Well, side B, my first choice was Joe Jackson. Is she really going out with him? So I need to go to my alternates list. Um, you've already taken one of my alternates, which was The Contours. Um, Do You Love Me? So now I have three songs to choose from, and none of them uh, use a question mark. No, one of them does. I'm sorry, one of them does. Hmm. <sighs> do I go with the good song? Do I go with the great song? Or do I go with the awful song? <laughs> The song that I promised that I would not include because it's by a hair band. Oh, oh okay. I know which song it is. <laughs> I, I remember that. What the heck? I'm going to go with it. Is This Love by Whitesnake? Hey, our listeners are appreciative. We have Whitesnake fans out there. This isn't the first time I've chosen a hair band. No, it's song. not. Remember, it's I not. chose Carrie by Europe you on did. our Couple Skates episode. You did, which is why I did not make the cut for our Girls, Girls, Girls episode. <laughs> you also eliminated Amanda. I did episode. eliminate Amanda. So you killed two <laughs> of them right there. Um, uh, you know, I always liked White Snake, though. So, but Well, yeah, I don't know a whole lot about White Snake other than, you know, David Coverdale is the, is the lead man, right. front man for the band. And I know that after the success of this album, he f- basically fired everybody in the band. So... Either he had a really good contract or he was really hard to work with. I don't know. But um, he, this album, the White Snake album in 1987, had a huge success. I didn't realize the success it had. The very first single, oh, remember I, the first single? Here I Go Again. Here I Go Again went to number one. Yeah, that was huge. And the second single, Is This Love, which is the one I'm choosing, was kept out of the number one spot by George Michael's Faith, or it would have gone to number one, too. So two huge uh, songs from that. Uh, I think there were other singles, of course. It didn't hurt the songs, yeah. either of them, <laughs> that they included uh, David Coverdale's then-girlfriend, Tawny Katane, who unfortunately just passed uh, a few months ago, uh, and a very lucky car. Yeah. Um, they knew how to get people to watch their MTV videos. They did, yeah. She is... <laughs> yeah. Essentially, she's twerking 20 years before, you know, it, it, it is a thing uh, all over the, the 
the car hoods. It was more than one car because I remember doing cartwheels. Yeah, if, if memory serves. But yes, yeah. If it, if it was not for the video, yeah, I don't know that they would have had the success with either either of their singles, really. Well, 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 I can't say that. Was she in the here? I yeah, she again? was. Okay, she actually was in three or four of the videos. Well, yeah, I knew it she was. In, what worked? Okay, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, Tony Katane. So, so you might ask, why? Why would I include this? Well, I only include, for the most part, I only include songs that I like. Okay, and I can like songs for a lot of different reasons, as we've established on the podcast. Uh, I like songs that are really, really good songs. Um, I like songs that make me feel a certain way. Uh, I also like songs that are nostalgic and can take me back to a place that perhaps I remember fondly. I can't say the late 80s were the fondest times of my life, uh, but there are moments. um, And apparently this song triggered something because when I went back and listened to this, uh, a flood of emotions came back. Probably some girl I was infatuated with where I listened to the song. I don't know because, you know, this wasn't my typical fare. But listening to this song, I do acknowledge the fact that it's a, it's a good pop song. Yeah, it's a little overproduced and I could get real technical, but I'm not going to be all snob about it because it's a late 80s song by a hair band, um, you know, and, and it bring, brings back good memories to me. I don't know who the young lady was that I was infatuated with, but, but she must have been special because uh, this song still plays well um, in my mind. episode with you <laughs> because it would just be hilarious to me to hear the sighs and the groans and the, well no listen like like okay so poison um uh talk dirty to me like i, I like that song again okay. i have a good connection to that song uh rat round and round well, i like that song well if we ever do this you're giving away the entire playlist because right we're not gonna ever do it so <laughs> def leppard uh the rock of ages so there are hair band songs i would even consider kiss like heaven's on fire and that, that's when they became a hair band so there are. I just there's. It's funny for all the hairband songs I like for, on a pop level, um, there are just songs that I despise. So it's really a love hate relationship based on the song itself and how it affected me emotionally. If that makes sense. So, okay. But I am choosing White Snake for this one. Surprise, surprise. I, yeah. I, I, that was my wife's suggestion, by the way. I think I, I didn't think about it until she mentioned it to me. Yeah. No. I. I just. I'm speechless. I never thought you would include willingly especially to begin <laughs> always listen to your wife i've learned that well yeah that that's um you know that, that's how it works so <laughs> that's off my alternates list and that is my first pick of the day happy wife happy life yep yes yeah. um the rest will not be like that 
<laughs> the rest are all new wave alternative. Oh, so you you're right in your your sweet spot. I am in my the, sweet the spot. Unless I have to go back to my alternates list, in which case my two choices are not new wave. But. Okay. Um, oh, here we go. I begin side B. My first pick is by Jimmy Buffett. It is from a white sport coat and a pink car, uh, pink crustacean from 1973. Did not uh, chart. Uh, it is. The I had to I had to include it. It is why don't we get drunk? Because one of the, one of the titles. Yeah, <laughs> there are several that have been on different versions of the song. Yes, yes, there are. I, I, you know, I, I was just playing with all the questions, and I'm like, I've got to include. It is it. a question. It, it is, and it's it. it it's just it, matter of fact. Let's just put it out there. Yeah, I, it, well, it's, it's a great song. It's what every too. song's about, but he just comes out and says it. Yep. Uh, according to Jimmy, uh, the song was written as a piece of total satire uh, when he did his first album in Nashville. Uh, he was hearing a lot of suggestive country songs at the time, in particular Conway Twitty's Let's Go All The Way. So, Mr. Buffett figured that he would write a song that would leave no doubt in anybody's mind. He said, uh, quote, I thought back to a late night in an Atlanta diner where I was eating and watched this out-of-focus businessman trying to pick up a hooker and that's all the inspiration I needed. So there you go. There you yeah, go. It is. It is. <laughs> it doesn't get any more, you know, literal. Uh, Jimmy wrote the song, uh, but he used the name Marvin Gardens as an alias. Uh, I'm assuming inspired by the Monopoly game property. Yeah, right, right, right. right. Uh, Parrotheads, though, have since joined in on the fun and contributed to the myth that Gardens is a real person, or was. Apparently, this legendary entertainer dropped dead on April Fool's Day in 1989 after hearing a promo copy of Buffett's 17th studio album, Off to See the Lizard, which I can kind of understand. Of all of Buffett's <laughs> albums, that's it's, the one. It's very synthesized. Yeah, oh, and very overproduced. But um, I do like Pascagoula Run. I'll, I'll give him that one. Um, anyway, when talking about the song with Rock Magazine Zoo World in 1973, uh, Buffett said that he was particularly vicious when writing it because he couldn't get anyone in Nashville to listen to his songs. And I think I feel like we talked about that in a previous episode, how he ended up in Florida is because uh, Tennessee would not give him any, you know, any chances. Uh, his fortunes have certainly changed since then. By the 90s, Buffett saw his fan base grow exponentially as Parrotheads started bringing their kids along to his shows. I've done that myself. Uh, in fact, first time I took my kids to see Buffett, they were they were young. Uh, Joel had to have been maybe seven, Ben four. I, I mean, but it was part of we were just down in Cincinnati doing a number of things. We saw him in Riverbend. Um, but yeah, the kids became immediate fans of Buffett, and they were not the youngest kids in that crowd. So yeah, the the parents they they do they bring the kids. Uh, that didn't stop him though, I should add, from singing the raunchier tracks in his repertoire. Like, Why Don't We Get Drunk? Um, I believe he renamed it for the Feeding Frenzy album? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Love Song from a Different Point of View is what he calls it on on that one. Um, He told Rolling Stone in 1996 that, um, well, he said, I still do that song, and some people don't want their kids to hear it. But when people don't want their kids to hear it, they stick their fingers in their kids' ears. And if they don't care, then they don't. And he said, that's about all the censorship I want. So, you know, props to, props to Jimmy. I really 
do appreciate the fact you're sitting here. Your voice sounds so wonderful, but your face don't look too clear. So barmaid, bring a pitcher, another round of brew. Honey, why don't we get drunk and screwed? Why don't we get drunk and screwed? I just bought a water bed filled up for me and you. They say you are a snuff queen. Honey, I don't think that's true. So why don't we get drunk and screwed? Pick it, Carl. He has mellowed, as I said, and and not wanting his fans to think that he condones reckless behavior, he has even altered the lyrics of this tune several times to discourage drunk driving and promote safe sex. Um, The past few years, he has even performed the song as, Why Don't We Get Lunch at School? (laughs) But having heard him sing uh, the song in these different ways, I can tell you that by song's end, he always concedes and sings the song as was intended, which, you know, he has to. That waterbed was filled up for the occasion, after all. So with Elmer's glue. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's my there's my first. I had to go. Why don't we get drunk and screw by Jimmy Buffett? Because why wouldn't I? <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> it's of it's course. that simple. You I, know? I knew you'd have that. So. Oh, well, and, and honestly, it's another one of those songs. I can't guarantee there ever would be another episode where I would have any. Just cause to include unless we <laughs> to did sexually overt lyric songs. Yeah, I thought about doing it that were played on the radio. You have to do that caveat. Yeah, that well, were and, on the radio. and I thought about doing that too. I mean, you know, playing with the idea of like an, a rated R play right. uh, mixtape, perhaps playlist. I, I don't know, but there we go. There's my first. All right, very good. All right. So this one, as promised, is in the alternative music vein of the this time the, the late '80s from 1988. We've talked about Pixies on this show before. Um, in fact, I think I included a song by Pixies at some point. I'm not sure which one. We might have a match. Really? In my, well, partial. Because if it's, where, if it's where, where I think you're headed, it's one of my alternates. Okay. Well, we've talked about them in reference, of course, to um, the grunge movement. Right. Directly inspiring, especially Nirvana. Like if you listen to Nirvana and you listen yeah. to Pixies, you can see... What's going on there? I, I went with uh, from Surfer Rosa. Where is my mind? It's one of my alternates. Really? Yeah. Wow. We have a match. I have the Pixies as an alternate. Where is my mind? I'm trying to think of what the other Pixies song was that I included. I thought I did at some point. Anyway, um, this song seems to pop up everywhere these days, and that's why I included it because it's one. It's probably the Pixie songs. If you're not a Pixies fan, you've heard this song somewhere. Uh, it's been in countless. TV shows and movies and probably most famously um, in Fight Club, in the final scene of Fight Club. Uh, also, television-wise, the HBO series The Leftovers, if you see, which, by the way, is a great series. Oh, it's fantastic. Uh, this song has kind of a, 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 it's kind of a re- recurring motif uh, when people aren't quite sure what's going on around them. 
thinks he's front man, Black Francis, formerly Frank Black, he keeps changing his name, uh, was inspired of all this. Everyone thinks it's this big, deep song. Really, it was inspired by a scuba diving experience in the Caribbean. Yeah. Um, that's all there really is to it, right? Quote, I was swimming in the Caribbean. Animals were hiding behind the rock. These are the lyrics, by the way. Except the little fish. Bump into me. Swear he's trying to talk to me. Say, wait, wait. <laughs> That's, so yeah, that's, yeah it's, it's the song. That's the song. It uh, does not match the sound because it has this infectious guitar riff. Um, that I mean, it's, it's very simplistic, but this great guitar riff, the trademark soft, loud, soft, loud style that Nirvana would adopt, of course. Right. But uh, it's become uh, one of the more enduring Pixie songs. As I mentioned, uh, not only was it used in lots of movies and television, it was also used in 2004 by NASA to wake up their team working on the Mars Mm -hmm. rover. Uh, I had an opportunity to see Pixies live a few summers ago. Um, Kim Deal, of course, is no longer with the band, um, but it was still a great show. Uh, They played uh, some of the newer ones. They actually have a few newer, newer tracks that are really, really good, but... Played their classes, of course. I did, however, get a chance to not only see, but meet Kim Deal down at the Nelsonville Music Festival when she was with the Breeders, and she signed my my playlist, which was really cool. So, um, yeah, if, if, you, if you're listening saying, I, I don't know this song, it's one of those, Alan says this to me all the time, right? No, you'll know it when you hear it. And if, if you watched Fight Club, if you watched The Leftovers, say, if you've seen, Fight if you've Club, seen any yeah. of those movies, um, right away you'll recognize that riff. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I've got nothing to add. You hit, you hit every note that I had. But um, yeah, no, I, that was one of my alternates, and I, I love the song. It's just, it's one that um, originally, you know, I, I, we had talked very early about possibly having a, a, a mixtape this season of, you know, going crazy, if you will, and I had that as one of the songs in my mind that I would use for that. We didn't, we're not going with that. Uh, that mixtape, so I yeah threw it onto the. I think questions. I did. I use Monkey Gone, Monkey's Gone to Heaven for the Animals episode, maybe. I believe so. Maybe that's where I yeah. Used I believe so. Um, yeah, and then by the way, they properly used a question mark. So okay. Yeah. Oh, did, so did Buffett. All right. By the way. All right. He, he was not so <laughs> drunk that he forgot to punctuate. So, um, okay. So, you, you that's good? it. That's all. All right. Did I impress you? Yeah. Okay. Very yeah. good. Because last season, I remember I, I always sounded so condescending. You said when I would say I'm impressed. So, oh, just, I wasn't trying to be kind. I, I, no, unexpected. No, 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 no. I shouldn't say impressed. I'm, no, I, I'm unexpected. Well, I'm, I, I was being sarcastic. <laughs> <laughs> the point is, but, you have to pick something from your alternates list now. I do. 
Well, no, that not one. Yet. Not when you, yet. When you get not to yet. it. Okay. That, that one was an alternate, but. Um, oh, oh, gotcha. Okay, so my, yeah, the only one I had to pick so far is for the Beach Boys, which I have not gotten to on my list yet. Um, all right, my next song is by Four Non Blondes. It is from 1992 uh, from their only album, Bigger, Better, Faster, More. The song uh, charted, it peaked at number 14, and it is titled What's Up. Now, now, as an English teacher, just as a quick aside, doesn't it bother you the band name a little bit? Four Non Blondes. It would have been much better just to say Four Brunettes. <laughs> it just, it's, <laughs> why, con, con, you know, it had to be concise as a writer. I'm kidding. I, I just, it always bugged me. The name bugged me. I'm like, just call yourself the Four Brunettes. Anyway. <laughs> I know, I know, I get it, I get it. Uh, yeah. Um, Maybe they're redheads, right? I don't know. <laughs> well, they're not. No. They're, they're all brunettes. <laughs> but uh, nonetheless, yeah, what's up uh, with a question mark since we're, we're keeping score here? Um, and yeah, Okay, folks, let, let, let me just begin by saying this. There are times, I believe, when we just need to take a deep breath and scream from the top of our lungs what's going on. I think uh, that's just a... That's a truth in life. And that is how Four Non Blondes front woman Linda Perry felt when she wrote this very cathartic song. According to Perry, it's like, quote, why does it always seem like either I'm struggling or there's some effing political mess happening? Why is this all happening in the world? Gosh, and that was, what What year was that, 80? 92. That was 92. 92. There was nothing happening exactly, in the world yeah. back. That's um, not true, but compared right. to the day, it yeah. seems like. Um, the song was influenced by the political climate of the time, um, which, yeah, I'm, in my mind, I'm trying to, the Gulf War was over. I mean, what what was happening in 92? We just got I mean, no, there were bad you, things happening. Right, yeah, There was especially, yeah. well, I'm sure at the time, well, not the stuff in Yugoslavia with like, ethnic cleansing, I don't think that had begun yet, though. But there was, of course, there was still bad stuff. Well, I mean, there always is. But I mean, we just got done in '91, of course, and now I can't, I can't even think what. Anyway, it was because of the political climate. Um, but she was wise enough not to include any political references in the lyric, which kind of makes it malleable. I mean, it it, it gives uh, the song staying power. It's 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 a timeless song in that she did not date it in any way. Uh, also missing from the lyric is the song's title. The phrase, what's up, does not appear anywhere in the song. Although, what's going on is repeated in the chorus refrain over and over again. As it turns out... So the song's out, not called What's Going On? No, it's titled What's Up. Really? What's Up, yeah. Um, it As it turns out, the song was originally titled What's Going On, but it was later changed to avoid confusion with a particular song from 1971 by Marvin Gaye. Ah, right. Okay. Which we, okay. we've we already covered talked about already that. Uh, in, in the last episode. Um, this was the first top 40 hit by an openly lesbian group. Uh, and somehow. I, wait, 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 wait. Is that no, true? It is true. Sophie B. Hawkins, she was. Well, she's an artist. Oh, you mean, this is the, so everybody in the group? Yeah, everybody in the group is a lesbian, is, okay. is a lesbian yeah. Um, first Top 40 hit by an openly, les, uh, openly lesbian group. Somehow the Indigo Girls, they didn't hit the Top 40 until 2004. Do you know that? 2004? What song yeah. hit in 2004? Uh, fill It Up Again. It hit the Top 40? Yeah, which it, well, it, peaked, the hot 100? it peaked at number 40. Really? And it remains their only top 40 single. Great song, but I didn't even know it charted. Yeah. Wow, I'm only top 40 single. Yeah, the Indigo huh. Girls. I learned because, something new about my because, favorite Because, yeah, when I looked that up, when, when I found that openly lesbian group, I thought to myself, certainly, you know, 
Yeah. Indigo Girls had to have charted. Hammer and Nail? Or no, what's, uh, what's the big one? that um, Closer to Find? Didn't yeah, it? no, no. Interesting. Nope, nope, nope. I mean, it, it did on the alternative. You know, right, but, right, but right. Modern not, Rock. But not facts. the Hot 100. Interesting. Um, for Nam Blonde's front woman, Linda Perry, she ad-libbed the lyrics to What's Up, uh, actually, instead of writing them down. Uh, they flowed out of her in about 30 minutes' time. And in an interview with Rolling Stone, For Non Blonde's bass player, Krista Hillhouse, recalled uh, that for a short time, Linda had quit her job and she was living with Hillhouse uh, in this little two-bedroom flat in San Francisco. Um, basically, according to Hillhouse, Perry wrote the song when she was in a room down the hall and Hillhouse was in her bedroom having sex, <laughs> okay? She stopped having sex because she heard Perry playing this song. She said, I remember running down the hall saying, dude, what are you playing? I like that. So I don't know if she's running down the hall naked. I don't know what her lover thought of all this, but nonetheless, she That's jumped, a little too much jumped out. Yeah, TMI. Imagination yeah, there, t- well, well, she's spelling it out for me in Rolling Stone right here. Okay. Uh, nonetheless, um, Oh, you don't think these things. You're 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 such a good child. Um, I might think them. I just don't say them. <laughs> well, that's been our relationship for thirty plus years. I suppose so, that's true. <laughs> anyway, um, she she said, "I remember running down the hall and saying, dude, what are you playing? I like that.'" Um, she said, "We had a lot of hard rocking, thrashy stuff back then, which I found kind of interesting. I don't know much about Four Non Blondes, um, but that's certainly not the description of them that that comes to my mind." She said, but Linda always would pull out her ballads. And I remember being struck by What's Up as she was playing it. She kept looking at me going, does this sound like something? Am I I plagiarizing someone? Um, And, you know, according to Hillhouse, she said, no, not that that I like what Paul McCartney said when he wrote yesterday. So she basically said, finish the song, it's beautiful, which Perry did, and the song caught on at their shows right away. People really liked it. So this was the second single, actually, uh, from Four Nine Blonde's debut album. Uh, the first was a song called Dear Mr. President, which, of course, was dated and had plenty of uh, political references in the lyric. The, the third single was called Spaceman. It suffered from a lack of promotion and didn't do very well at all. So they recorded songs for some movie soundtracks as well. But in the end, they broke up soon after without ever recording another album. So they had just the one major hit and and it, it is a major hit 25 years I'm a lot still trying to get up that great big hill of hope for a destination I realized quickly when I knew I should that the world was made up of this brotherhood of man for whatever that means into a crisis times when I'm lying in bed just to get it all out what's in my head and I, I am feeling a little peculiar into a wake in the morning and I step outside and I take a deep breath and I get real high and I scream from the top of my lungs what's going on 
After Four Nine Blondes broke up, Linda Perry released a solo album in 96 called In Flight, and then another in 99 called After Hours. Neither of those did very well. But she eventually found her groove as a songwriter, starting with Pink's 2001 hit Get the Party Started, followed by Christina Aguilera's Beautiful. And, you know, the list of her writing credits goes on from there. In 99, she toured as an opening act for Brian Adams, and she was accompanied by her former bandmate, again, Krista Hillhouse. Um, according to Hillhouse, this is from the same Rolling Stone uh, interview, it was just us two. We had no crew, nothing, she said. We followed their tour bus around in a van. Of course, Brian Adams and his band were flying everywhere. We would finish the show, throw our stuff, not the word she uses, in the van, and I would drive. She said it was insane. Their crew was always surprised when we would actually show up at the next uh, next venue. Then when we took the stage, the audience would look at us and have no idea who we were. So we would tell them we were the Indigo Girls and that we just got out of rehab. And then Linda would start playing those three chords to What's Up and the audience would immediately recognize the song and you could hear the collective question Oh, I didn't know that was an Indigo Girl song. <laughs> Jeez. So, she said, it was fun. But then Pink came calling. Pink was a huge Four Nine Blondes fan, huge Linda Perry fan. Linda jumped at the opportunity to work with her and write for her, and she moved on. Um, Hill House and Perry, who were very close, she said she's not seen Linda Perry since then. Uh, today, with over a billion YouTube views, What's Up is actually one of the most popular songs from the 90s. I just, I love What's Up. And it always bothered me that the song was titled What's Up and the refrain is What's Going On. I guess but, I always thought it was just called What's Going On. Yeah, but no, they, they changed it very specifically. They didn't want it to be confused. I don't know how it could be confused with Marvin Gaye, but nonetheless, that's, that's why they changed it. All right, your turn. This is the song with two question marks that's made up for so many songs without a single question mark. Okay. All right. Um, I'm going to say the album and see if you, and, and I'm not going to be condescending if you say you do know the, the artist. I will say I'm impressed, but that's, I'm not saying that you should necessarily know the album here. I was, again, I was being sarcastic <laughs> with the condescension. The I'm, album from 2002 <laughs> was called uh, Yoshimi Battles the Pink Robots. That's one hint. Um, this song, this band has been around since we were at WFAL. In fact, we, we played a, a song from this band at WFAL, but they did not become um, known, at least by the wider public, until 2002 because of this song. And the reason this song became so big was because it was included in a Microsoft commercial for Windows or Media Center. I think it was Media Center. Still lost? <laughs> no, here's the problem. I feel like I know this. The, 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 but the song at WFL that we played was called She Don't Use Jelly. Okay, that didn't help Flaming me. Flaming Lips. Flame, Flaming Lips. Okay. <laughs> no, I, I was not going there. I know you're not so, a lot of Flaming Lips yeah. guy, so. Um, and the song is Do You Realize? She Don't Use Jelly. I do remember that you song. Remember that song? I, yeah. Oh. <laughs> wow. This is, this, this is Do You Realize? From the Flaming Lips. It's, um, believe it or not, it was the official rock song of the state of Oklahoma from 2009 to 2013. Until Republican lawmakers voted to repeal the title based on the band's use of, quote, offensive language. Not in the song, mind you, just in general. 
It, they had a contest. They voted. People in Oklahoma voted, and they kept paring down the songs, and this is what the people wanted, because the Flaming Lips are from Oklahoma. Uh, right. I figured. And yeah. uh, Republicans said, no, we don't want them uh, as far as our state songs. So, uh, yeah, whatever. But... <laughs> Do you realize? I, I, <laughs> well, in this song too. I mean, this is. A, Do you realize is maybe the most accessible Flaming Lips song has become a staple in live shows since its release. Um, you know, it, it said that this song is so malleable. Is that the word I'm looking for? Yeah. Um, that um, it's been played at weddings, graduations, funerals. Okay, it's just one of those that touches people in a lot of different ways. Oh, I've, I've played it. Yeah. yeah. The video for the song inclu- uh, includes, right, women dressed up as rabbits, pigs, and frogs, a st- uh, stoned farm girls in lingerie, and a live elephant. <laughs> so check that one out. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, that, I feel like that was too. You were, you were complaining about my description of what's up, and I'm, I'm. Yeah. This. Now I'm, I'm, I'm flaming lips yeah. are very um, they are yeah. out there in a, in a psychedelic <laughs> induced sort of way very much so but yes. uh, but they're really good they're really really solid musically so even if even if lyrically they're they're kind of out in space somewhere and their their videos are right along with it very true so do you realize with two question marks from the flaming lips all right well my next one has no question mark um, it is. It is one of his masterpieces. It comes from All Things Must Pass from 1970. Hit number one, and it is by George Harrison, Isn't It a Pity? Mm -hmm. Um, I will argue the best Beatles solo album, period. Yeah, I I would not disagree. the you know the older I get because I've I've actually you know the question you know who's your favorite Beatle I've gone through three different answers. I mean, when I was younger, it was Paul. In college, when I felt like I was more cerebral, it was John. But then I aged, and I'm telling you what, it's it's George. Time and well, time again now, it's George for me. This reminds so. me a little of like what would later happen when, when Phil Collins would start writing all this music, and, and a lot of it wasn't what Genesis wanted to record. You know, we talked about this where John and Paul... Kind of like, uh, kind of like with Kiss, what we talked about a couple weeks ago uh, with Paul Stanley and Gene Simmons. Paul and, and and John, I think, were very protective of of them being the primary songwriters of the band. Oh, yeah. 
And so when George came along, and you could argue in, in the late Beatles era, um, George was was writing the most interesting music. Oh, without question. And they still limited him to a track or two. Yeah. And so this double album after the Beatles broke up, which by the way, Eric Clapton's all over this album. So many, so many artists are all over this album. They are. Yeah. You can hear all the great material that George Harrison had been writing and just was not able to fit onto the Beatles or wasn't allowed to fit yeah. onto Beatles records. Well, and this is one of them. Um, you know, it, as it is, it's one of his solo masterpieces, but it was first written in 1966 during the Revolver Sessions. Yeah, there you go. Uh, Lennon vetoed the Beatles from working on Isn't It a Pity at the time. So, yeah, John just said, no, it's not going on Revolver. That simple. Um, Harrison then attempted to introduce the band to it a second time in 69 towards the end of the Get Back, Let It Be Sessions. But again, John said no. So frustrated, Harrison almost considered giving it to Frank Sinatra. Interesting. Yeah, which that I didn't know. Um, that, I, that I found interesting. But of course he didn't, right? He held onto the track and finally included it on the 1970 solo album, Again, All Things Must Pass. In fact, he released two versions of the song on that album. Um, according to Harrison, isn't it a pity? Uh, it's about whenever a relationship... Um, hits a down point, he said. Instead of whatever other people do, like breaking each other's jaws, this is his quote, uh, I wrote a song. It was a chance to realize that if I felt someone had let me down, then there was probably a very good chance that I was letting someone else down. We all tend to break each other's hearts and not uh, giving back. Isn't it a pity? So then that comes from, from George himself. Uh, the lyrics are divided into two halves. Uh, the first sees Harrison regretful at the heartache and pain people cause one another. And his lines, how we take each other's love without thinking anymore, forgetting to give back, it's actually really reminiscent of McCartney's closing lines on the Beatles' swan song, Abbey Road. And in the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make. Um, the, the other half reflects Harrison's spiritual ideals. It harks back to a Sgt. Pepper song, Within You, Without You. Um, and, you know, just as he had sung about the people who hide themselves behind a wall of illusion, never glimpse the truth, then it's far too late, and the time will come when you see we're all alone. On Isn't It a Pity, he repeats, he repeats the theme. I mean, some things take so long, but how do I explain when not too many people can see we're all the same, and because of all the tears, their eyes can't open to see the beauty that surrounds them. I mean, it's... You know, you can see where this fits in with the Beatles, you know, catalog uh, when it was first written. It's it's right there. It's a revelatory song, and it's it's beautiful. I mean, the music, 
It contains much of the song's emotional punch, really. I mean, it begins with the stately piano chords and then the strummed acoustic guitars. Version 1 builds and crescendos with orchestral and choral swells and an extended electric slide guitar solo that becomes the focus of the latter half. Um, the expansive final section and lengthy fade of the seven-minute recording inevitably, uh, you know, it invites comparison with Hey Jude, although Harrison's chords are much more inventive and complex than McCartney's were, and the wall of sound treatment was in marked contrast to George Martin's crystal clear production. Um, version two was a far more stripped down and sedate affair. It clocks in at under five minutes rather than the excess of seven. Uh, much of Phil Spector's excess production was absent. And here, I mean, a lot of people, you know, they blame Spector for overproducing, but here, uh, when you take out Spectre's contribution, the production from the, from the the much lengthier version, much of the emotional weight uh, is is diminished as the end result. I mean, for me, it's it has to be the the orchestral version that we go with. Um, the fact that Harrison was able to release two versions of the same song on his first post Beatles album, and not to mention the indulgent Apple Jam of all things must pass third disc shows really his status and influence as a recording artist. I mean, lesser performers would have been kept in check by the record company, but Apple Records had no such compunction with a former Beatle, right? So, yeah, version one of Vision and a Pity was almost released as the first single um, in October 1970. However, it eventually accompanied My Sweet Lord on a double A-side single in the U.S. And there it climbed the charts and it peaked at number one, on the Hot 100. Yeah, that's that's an album I throw in quite often. I just, especially when I'm traveling, I just like to listen to the whole thing straight through. So yeah. good. Uh, agreed. All right, your turn. All right. Well, you're not going to like this. Well, at least you don't like the artist. You'll probably say that you respect the artist. You just have never. You just don't. You know, you're not a fan per se. At least you've told me that. <laughs> the Who. You know me so well. The Who. <laughs> Who are you? Okay, I don't like the artist, but I respect the artist. Okay, <laughs> I figured you would say that. And you're not wrong. Yes, go on. I don't know how you not, how do you not, they are. I just, I, they don't do it for giants me. Giants of classic rock and in, in the inspired punk music, they they evolved like the Stones. Uh, it's just, uh, all right, okay. I, they have songs, don't be right. wrong. Every band has songs that, you know, I, they have songs I like. I mean, I like Bob O'Reilly, Squeezebox, uh, even my generation. I mean, mm-hmm. there's maybe the hits, of course. I don't, I don't know their deep cuts because I'm not a fan. And I'd argue their 70s stuff is, is more interesting than their 60s. Well, stuff. yeah. I mean, Tommy, I, I love Tommy um, just in itself. I mean, I, I've always been fascinated by the rock opera. Quadrophenia, I, I just mm, never. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, I I've tried. Really? Dave. I've tried. I can't. No. Yeah. And then who's next? I'm yeah. Like, eh. Which I'm assuming we're talking. Who are you? Who are you? Yeah. Yes, I yes, figured that's from the album. Who are you? Yeah. 1978. Right. So yeah, and I I just I, they don't do it. I'm. No, I don't know why. Right. I've, I've tried and I try. No, I, I'm trying to explain it to myself because <laughs> I tell people I don't like the Who and I get that blank stare from everybody and it's not for lack of trying I've listened to their music time and again I just I can even understand people not getting into Neil Young because his vocal well, and Neil, style is, is a little yeah. bit different and than, Neil Young is another one you know that right. I mean he's another one but I understand that more than I do because the Who is just they have yeah, everything they have I the just, whole package there is just a disconnect there I mean it's, it's not them it's me 
Okay, <laughs> so, I'll agree with I, you that. Yeah. <laughs> but I, yeah, I can't do it. Well, here's a song that's been played on the radio um, unedited for years, despite two F-bombs that are somewhat obscured by drum fills, but still quite intelligible when you listen closely. Yes, they are. Um, the Who's Pete Townsend was inspired to write this uh, after Night Out. Um, he... I was just out and drinking somewhere and ran into Steve Jones and Paul Cook of the Sex Pistols. And you can imagine what kind of night ensued. Um, it was kind of one of those, um, you know, they were so happy to run into Pete because The Who was such an inspiration to them. And he was so interested to hang out with them because they were kind of carrying The Who tradition to the next level. You know, punk music was kind of taking what The Who had started and, and, and going to the next place with it. Um, eventually, in that morning, a policeman, like the lyrics say, found Townsend in a doorway and um, said he'd let him go as long as he could walk away on his own power, to which Pete said, who the blank are you, <laughs> and walked away. Um, but in 1978, you know, the Who started hearing about how they influenced all these punk bands, uh, especially ones coming out of, you know, England at the time. And they appreciate these accolades, but they wanted to continue being the band that was still breaking ground, right? They still wanted to have the edge. They weren't ready to settle into some commercial and creative lull as so many artists do once they're in their 40s or beyond. And you can really hear it in the song. That they, I mean, this is 19th I was surprised. I knew this was a later song. I, I forgot that it was this late in the Who's catalog because I would have said this is probably like, you know, like early 70s. Um, but they were still bringing it, uh, even in 78. Um, Who Are You may be familiar to younger audiences um, as it was used as a theme song for the CBS drama CSI. Um, CSI continued with, I think they had three or four different incarnations of the show, right? They had something like CSI. That. Yeah. Um, the first was Vegas, and then they had uh, Miami, then they had uh, New York. But every single one had a different Who song as their theme song. Right. Like Bob O'Reilly was one of them and so forth. Um, the song from the album of the same name is the last album on which drummer Keith Moon appears. He, of course, passed away later that year. I mean, here's a band that had its start in the in the British invasion, right of the of the mid '60s, uh, and and just continued kind of like the Stones, uh, but I would say in, in in a greater way. When the Stones at this time were doing disco, okay, the Who was still bringing rock as hard as they possibly could. You say that looking right at me, like like <laughs> you you went full t- full on teacher mode there. It's like <laughs> this is why I. I 
I the under- rest of the world loves the Who. I, well, I I do know some that I, I'm not the only person who does not like the Who. I think you might be. I, no, I know a few. <laughs> okay, I, I've actually from time to time met a few okay. who say I get it, and of course my best friend who I happen to co-host a, a podcast with is staring me down, lecturing me <laughs> at the moment. But I am um, no, I, I just I. I, I can't explain it. I, I don't know. I, I love I love the fact that they were embraced by like the 60s generation, but that they were just as popular, um, you know, in the late 70s and early 80s from a different generation and not from a nostalgic standpoint. Like they were legitimately embraced by that's a little little bit younger than than, than we right the, kind of the generation right before. Right. Um, probably the, the, the younger or the older, I should say the older Gen Xers, the first Gen Xers um, just really embraced them. Just even though they were these older men who had been around since the '60s, and that's that's kind of uncommon because usually you want to rebel against the music of the next of the previous generation. Right. Yeah. No. I. I, I can't. I'm, I apologize. I apologize. You to, don't have to apologize for I, your opinion. I, I, well, you're making me feel like I need to apologize. You don't have to apologize for your opinion. I'm simply just. <laughs> I know. I know. Stating. I, I just. You admitted that they're influential and, and oh, that you respect that. Without so, question. That's all I got to hear. Yeah. No, I, I, I'm going to give... There are bands that I respect that I don't like. Yeah. I get that. Yeah, and I'm going to give credit where it's due. I, I just... The Stones, yes. The Beatles, hell yes. The the Who, I just... Eh, I, I, they, they, I, I can't. I don't know. Um... So that I, was the one, by the way. That I, did, I said I had all new wave and alternative. That was the exception on my list. I was wondering. Yeah, that was yeah, the exception. Um, but not, but they they fit in. Yep. I mean, it makes sense with the you know, and the, and and the other band by the way that really influenced punk early on from the British Invasion, the Kinks. Of oh course. yeah. Oh, you I listen. No, I love the Kinks. Yeah. If you listen to the Kinks, the Kinks and the Who, you hear what would later become. And the Ramones kind of started it with early yeah. rock and roll, but then bands like the Clash and the Sex Pistols would take um, the Ramones and right. the Who and the Kinks and so forth. And then yeah, I always forget about the Kinks. Yeah, I, I love the Kinks. Don't get me it, wrong. It's that I, it's that three chord you know yeah, hard. Yeah. Rock is what it is. Yeah, it really is. Um, okay, so my next one, we are going to go real mellow coming out of the Who. Um, my next one is from the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack from 1977. Hit number one, and it is without question my favorite track by the Bee Gees. How Deep Is Your Love? Yes. Love this song. I've always loved this song. Uh, I am not a huge disco fan. I don't hate disco. This I, is I, a disco slow dance. Though. It is, yeah, it is. Um, I don't. I mean, by, you know, I, I'm at the right age now where I can look back and disco is fun. I mean, I wasn't a part of you know the the album burning in the stadium, um, but I do remember the the outrage and the backlash. I was old enough to remember. I have people. a feeling we would have been with that crowd. Oh, we would have been. We would have been. But I, you know, we were born too late, and you know, being born uh, after the fact, uh, or at least being so young when it happened. I, I can have fun with disco. Um, and yeah, this one is a slower one, of course. But um, the Bee Gees, they, they wrote this love song at the Chateau d'Herveville in France. It is also known as the Honky Chateau. It's where Elton John recorded three albums in the early 70s. Probably including Honky Chateau. Uh, that I would guess, yes. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> um, when they arrived to record the songs um, for Saturday Night Fever, because that's that's why they... Um, you know, were there. They they isolated themselves in the Hongi Chateau for Saturday Night Fever uh, soundtrack recording. Uh, they found that it had really been neglected. The studio worked, but the grounds were a mess. So that actually gave them focus because they had very little reason to leave the studio. 
Uh, what they did find inside, there was one room that w- that they all described as having been one of the most beautiful rooms they'd ever seen. And in that room was a piano where their keyboard player, his name is Blue Weaver, he would sit down and play. Well, one day he played as Barry Gibb worked out How Deep Is Your Love, okay? And in the documentary, uh, How Can You Mend a Broken Heart?, uh, Weaver explained that they, they found the piano in the room at the chateau and Weaver already knew he had learned that Chopin had stayed stayed there so every time he looked at the piano he envisioned Chopin playing it so he, he eventually sat down at the piano himself and he thought of Chopin's prelude in E flat and Weaver knew that Barry Gibb could sing in E flat so he just started playing and Barry began to improvise singing I know your eyes in the morning sun. And at that moment, according to Weaver, a beam of sunlight suddenly shone through the big stained glass window of the room right onto the piano, Barry and himself. And as they continued to improvise, you know, the end result was how deep is your love? Now, if all that's true, then Chopin gave his blessing Chopin, from above. Chopin and, and the heavens above, you know, ordained the, the, ordained the song. Ordained the Beaches. Yes. Um, nonetheless, this was a massive hit in the U.S. It was number one for three weeks. It stayed in the top ten for 17 weeks, uh, which was a record at the time. Uh, the song also was a huge hit on the adult contemporary chart where it spent six weeks at number one, more than any other Bee Gees song. Uh, when Billboard listed their top 100 adult contemporary songs of all time in 2011, How Deep Is Your Love came in at number 13. Um, this was the first of four new songs from the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack that all topped the U.S. Hot 100. It was released as a single before the film or the soundtrack were issued, and it rose to the top spot a week after the film debuted. Touch me in the pouring rain And the moment that you wander apart from me I want to feel you in my arms again And you come to me on a summer breeze Keep me warm in your love Then you softly leave And it's me you need to Now, singer Yvonne Elman was supposed to record this track, actually. Um, they, were, they were writing it for, for her. But Robert Stigwood, who produced the movie, insisted that the Bee Gees perform it themselves. Elman did sing If I Can't Have You, uh, which was written by the Bee Gees and included on the soundtrack. That song also uh, became a number one hit. Uh, in 1983, a songwriter and antiques dealer in Illinois named Ronald Selly sued the Bee Gees, claiming a song that he wrote in 1975 called Let It End was the basis for How Deep Is Your Love. The Bee Gees claimed that they had never heard Let It End, and there was no evidence that they, they had. 
the song was never released. Selly made a home recording that he had then sent to music publishers. The case was based on the similarities between the songs, and an expert witness for Selly, a musicologist who was named Aaron Parsons, he tried to convince the jury through technical analysis of the notes that the Bee Gees plagiarized the song. The jury bought it, and they ruled that the Bee Gees did copy Selly's song. The judge, however, nullified the verdict, and, and Selly later appealed and was once again rebuffed. Uh, the case actually underscored the problem of juries making judgments on music, and it led to a landmark ruling that uh, striking similarities between songs was not enough to prove plagiarism. Yeah, especially Wait, chord progressions. You yeah, can't. Yeah, which is something George Harrison probably would have appreciated, <laughs> you know. Um, henceforth, a, a songwriter had to prove that the infringing party actually heard the song before the case could be could move forward. So this was the, the landmark case that set that precedent. Uh, this is one reason, of course, why music publishers and songwriters today refuse to hear any unsolicited material. Right. Yep. Uh, if you throw a, a cassette tape onto the stage, you know, at, at a concert, the artist is going to pick it up and let everyone in that arena see him throw it back. I mean, it, yeah, it's 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 it is probably the the biggest no no of of them all. You do not listen to any recording, um, and it's because of how deep is your love. So, uh, but yeah, no, it's a beautiful song, and it just. It's one I can never get tired of, uh, and you know, and eerily enough, now I associate it with Black Mirror. Do you remember that episode where mm. she buys her husband dies and she buys the oh yeah the, the lifelike yeah, yeah. doll of him? Yeah. I, I don't. They used the song in the the episode, but now I I for whatever reason I always think Black Mirror when I hear the song, which kind of kind of. I'm thinking of uh, XTC's kind um, of kills it. <laughs> making plans for Nigel was used in the um, oh yeah. The one where you could choose your endings and you had to choose the yeah. different path. That was cool. Yeah, it was. Great. I, is it coming back for another season? Have you heard anything about Black Mirror? I, I assume it is. It's just every one of those is better than most movies that are produced that year. So oh, without question. It takes time to well, produce them. And I figure COVID played right. into it, but yeah. it, it's just, it's been, what, two, maybe three years now, and I haven't heard anything. Yeah, so. it's been a while. Anyway, uh, your turn. All right. Going back to 1982, love that year, love that year. Um, This song reached number two on Billboard for three weeks. Unfortunately, Billie Jean, unfortunately, at least for this band, Billie Jean kept it off the top spot. Uh You know what song I'm going with? It's not on my list, so it's not a match, but... The song did hit... Men at Work? Nope, no, No. Men at Work. Okay, it's not... Uh, not Who could it be now? Yeah, that's what I was thinking. The song did hit number one in 23 different countries and was the first hit for new wave band Culture Club. Oh. Do you really want to hurt me? I hate this song. What? This As song, a soul guy, you're a soul guy. I know I am, but this is a soul oh song. My, this is one of those songs, it is It is the ultimate earworm. It's a soul I song. I cannot Alan. get this song out. I don't understand. Uh, when we sequence, you're going to play this and it's going to be in my head the rest of the... <laughs> Damn Would day. you like me to change mine to Men at Work? No, 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 no. Because I'm sure we have Culture Club fans out there that are, you know, very appreciative. Oh, this was, I loved Culture I had everything from no, Culture Club. No, don't get me wrong. Club. I like Culture Club. Yeah. I like Culture Club. I hate this song. It's mm. just, 
don't you have those earworms? I do, I just, do, I do. Uh, I, know what you mean. I know what you mean. It's like... Uh, this, this is on the opposite end of that. This is one I can listen to forever and never get sick of. Okay. I do remember. Maybe you can at least, um, you know... Um, I was, I was praying it was men at work. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you can relate to at least this part of it. I distinctly remember seeing the video on MTV as a kid. I remember the video. And when it first aired, remember, like, Boy George is going to different places, like a health club or a restaurant, and everybody's, like, freaking out at his appearance, right? So, you know, like most of America, I'm guessing, we were kind of confused by the singer's androgynous look. Um, In fact, the issue was not resolved, at least for me, until I learned that his name was Boy George. I'm like, oh, okay. Um, Of course, today, the look wouldn't turn many heads. But back in the conservative 80s, it caused a media stir. Right. It really did. Yeah. Uh, George said that this song is about his former boyfriend and bandmate, John Moss. But then he's also said that that isn't true, that it's about all of the men he had dated up to this point in his life. So it's probably all those things. See, I thought, I would have guessed that it was just about treatment of, you know, the homosexual community no. itself. No, so. although the video was, if you well, remember. And that's why, the video, that's the association that I made. In fact, the video at the end... Um, it would not play with it. Well, it didn't play well then even, but today would not play at all because um, in, the, in the, the jury box are um, people in blackface that are like shaved, like doing a, an Al Jolson thing with, with gloves. I, I don't remember that. And the British interpretation of that, because of course they have a little different relationship with right. race relations than what we do. Um, and the whole minstrel show thing meant something different. It was a way to show out uh, hypocrisy or something along those lines. Uh, so American audiences were, you know, little taken back. Not enough for it to be canceled back then. Of course, today it would never oh, play. Oh, it would never air. Um, yeah. But if you do go back and watch the video and, and, and you're a little shocked by that blackface, I'm, not, I'm still not defending it, but I'm telling you that in England it, it meant something huh. different for them and they were not aware that it would offend people in the United States. Okay. And they weren't aware of that. So anyway, I became a, song, a fan of the song uh, and the soft reggae beat um, and as the few, you know, singles begin to drop, I became a huge fan. This must have been about the time when I kind of moved from vinyl to cassette, because I remember I had "Kissing to Be Clever" on cassette. I had um, uh, what was it? What was it? Was it "Colorblind Numbers"? What? Colorblind, Colorblind Numbers. Yeah. yeah, the second one. I had that on cassette. See, um, I had both on vinyl. I don't okay. think I'd made the switch yet. And I just remember I played the heck out of those 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 tapes over and over again. I, I love Culture Club. I mean, Time, Clock of the Heart, I could put it on right now. You know, Car- Karma but I do love, uh, um, who can it be now? I could pick that. 
What? I'm not telling you to change your song. I'm just. I don't want you to have an earworm. No, well, that's where I thought you were. You said '82, and I okay, thought yeah, yeah. I thought business as usual. I wasn't. Th- I wasn't even thinking Culture Club. Um, no, it's it's just that song. It, it is. It's for me. It's it is one of the worst earworms. It's just one I can't get out of my head. Well, we won't play it. You can just imagine it when we do our sequencing. Well, you gotta hear it, the intro and the outro. But, I, I'll, but I'll hum it for you. Okay, but here's the fair thing. The wonderful thing about playlists is I can just yeah. So it's a mixtape you'd have to mixtape I'd have to fast forward and then rewind when I fast forward too far and I, I would end up hearing there the damn go. song. So yeah, playlists have their as much as I hate to admit it their advantages. So <laughs> but oh, that's my pick. Okay, so are we in your alternates? No, no, no. I have yet. one more than than I have then an alternate. The alternate. Okay. Um, well, my next song was "Wouldn't It Be Nice." So I need to go to my alternates. Um, one of them I'm tempted, but I really think you're you have it. Um, if you don't, then I I'm wrong. But I'm not going to include it because it's definitely right in that new wave era that you were talking about. Um, I, I might have it. Then. Yeah. Okay. Here's here's what I'm going to go with. Okay. Uh, I'm going to take you back to 1967, mm-hmm. Summer of Love, mm-hmm. and I'm going to ask you the question that has been. Uh, you know, people have been trying to answer, trying to figure out what is being asked for a very long time. Are you experienced? Oh. We're going to go. Well, hello, Hendrix. Yeah. You know, I was thinking, just as a quick aside, you mentioned late 60s. Too bad we couldn't fit in the uh, 96 tears by question mark and the Mysterians. Yeah, yeah. But I'm perfect, but we're not doing band names. So. Uh, yeah. I, I, anyway, yes, I, Hendrix. I thought about that same thing this week, <laughs> actually. Um, yeah, are you experienced? Jimi Hendrix experience. Um you know, you know, in 1967, the Jimi Hendrix Experience, they debuted with with an explosive album, which sounded harder and heavier than anything else from that year. But it was not the slightest bit unfocused. I mean, it, it was led by the extraordinary talent of Hendrix, and, and the experience was an unheralded act as a group, especially when it came to the wild and entertaining drumming of Mitch Mitchell, uh, along with bassist Noel, Noel uh, Redding. Uh, this power trio they released probably the most stunning debut in rock history and it's it remains one of the greatest albums of all time uh, the sound forged on the album uh, it synthesized elements of 1967 psychedelic rock with traditional rock blues and soul um, it, it was all topped off then by the proficient and original guitar work by Hendrix who used cutting edge techniques and technology to create sounds that had never been heard before so Hendrix you know, he also composed solid songs rooted in heavy blues and roots rock. So this, along with the the frantic but solid rhythm by Redding and Mitchell, it, it just gave Hendrix the perfect canvas on which to paint his guitar masterpieces. So, yeah, this pick. I mean, I'm, I'm. It's the title song, which concludes the album. Are you experienced? Uh, and it's considered by many to be one of Hendrix's most original compositions. The, the song is largely based on one chord, and it has a drone-like quality reminiscent of Indian classical music. Uh, it draws strong influence from Beatles songs like Tomorrow Never Knows and Strawberry Fields Forever um, because it, it employed the backward-masked guitar, bass, and drums, as well as Hendrix on piano and percussion. Uh, so the effect... I, this this still baffles me. The effect that, that's created, it, it sounds a lot like record scratching, you know, uh, predating the technique. 
of, of that's actually used to dominate rap and hip hop. It, it predates it by almost two decades. But if you listen to it, it, it does. It sounds like DJ scratching. Uh, the effect also made the song incredibly difficult to play live, though, especially for drummer Mitchell. Uh, the backwards track was recorded four times, with the last take being used for the final version. Um, and according to engineering assistant uh, George Chikanitz, the, the original idea for the guitar recording was to do a loop, but that gave a problem because they they tried looping it and then they couldn't get it to loop. So in the end, Jimmy got so impatient doing this, he said, look, it's it's quite easy, we're just going to play. And he played in reverse. That That's how like incredible... <laughs> Hendrix is. He played it in reverse. Uh, he also performed some of the backwards drum parts and on the song in addition to drummer Mitch Mitchell. So Mitchell's military snare raps um, out behind the startlingly contemporary hip-hop scratch sound effects of tapes running backwards, it, it punctuates Jimmy's condition for being your guide. If you can get your mind together. Yeah. To what? Sexual ecstasy, altered states of consciousness, or just finding yourself, taking time out to view what you're you're doing from the outside, from the bottom of the sea, he says, letting go of the daily grind of the measly world. It is all there for the taking, he says. The secret is being at peace with yourself, not necessarily stoned, but beautiful. So, you know, the question itself, are you experienced, has left listeners, as I said, it stumped for generations, for over five decades, uh, mutating with each year and spawning countless psychedelic explorers and seemingly holding no intention to ever deliver us into the answer. Most listeners believed then, and still do, that Hendrix was asking if the listener had experienced drugs. Others interpreted the question to mean, have you lost your virginity? And still others considered it as a double entendre, asking both. But what has always confused listeners is that closing line, have you ever been experienced? Uh, you know, he says, uh, the secret is being at peace with yourself, not necessarily stoned, but beautiful. If you can just get your mind together, then come on across to me. And then we'll watch the sunrise From the bottom of the sea But first, are you experienced? Or have you ever been experienced? Well, When asked what he, what he was asking, Hendrix himself deflected. <laughs> okay, he said, "quote It was not necessarily about drugs, but about being at peace with yourself, which was, of course, you know, the lyric." <laughs> he right, literally right. answered the question with the lyric, and then I'm sure it sounded good, but it, it did not give any meaning. Uh, no matter the meaning, though, in the 54 years since its release. Uh, I would say, or I would, I would venture, you know, to ask: Is there anything more incandescent and seductive than Hendrix singing? Are you experienced? Have you ever been experienced? Will I have? And he just purrs, you know. Let me prove it. Probably not. Um, I'd say it's, it's. I don't think anything surpassed it. He he delivers one of the most 
iconic aural explorations ever heard. And it's complete with the backwards guitars, the octave pedals, rewound tapes, mind-blowing dexterity on the fretboard. I mean, this song is as trippy today as it was on its release. And it's just, I I don't know. I It's not, It's you can't dance to it. I'll give you that. And it's mostly spoken word, but it is just, it, it, it's mind-blowing. Classic, and, yeah. No yeah. doubt. So, there we go. There Very we go. good choice. Good gonna choice. go. Are you experienced? So, so were you thinking my next one would be by the Clash? I did from nineteen eighty two. Yeah, from Combat Rock. Yeah, Combat Rock. Yes. Should I stay or should I go? Yes. Without a question mark. Okay. So, I'm, <laughs> so there, I was I was correct. I was correct and not. Yes. Yes. That's right. Okay. I was hoping the answer was yes. Of course. You just I, kept going. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. That was the one that I skipped over, saying I thought you might have it. So. Yes. Unlike uh, Rock the Casbah, which we um, featured on our Rock episode this season. Should I Stay or Should I Go did not reach the top 40 in America, uh, but was played by AOR stations at the time. The song gained more prominence actually in the 1990s when the band gave permission to Levi's to use it uh, in an advertising campaign. You know how I feel about songs being used in advertising campaigns. Uh Um, And especially I was surprised because The Clash, you know, they're pretty political, pretty anti-corporate. I figured somebody owned their, you know, publishing rights or something. But actually... Even though they were opposed to the commercialization of their music, they agreed to allow Levi's to use the song since they consider blue jeans to be a part of the culture of rock and roll and didn't represent anything to be, quote, opposed on moral grounds, end quote. Huh. Which reads to me, they need money. <laughs> they needed money bad. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that would be my guess. I mean, yeah. They needed money and they were able to justify um, selling it to Levi's. But hey, it's fine, you know. I'm not, it's it's good. It's all good. Uh, yeah, I, but everything about the clash, just, that just smacks. <laughs> no. you know, they, they were so, uh, whatever, you know, preaching to the choir. Um, if, you, if you listen, about two minutes into the song, Mick Jones yells, split. Apparently, this is because uh, Joe Ellie and Joe Strummer, when they were recording the song, came out from behind the partition where Jones was recording and startled him. <laughs> Jones shouts out in surprise. The two of them run back to their booth. They continue with the recording, and that version made the record. It's a great song. It's a song I play when I have, I have some playlists I've created on Spotify. If I'm with a group of people and someone says, hey, let's put some music on, you know, depending on the on the crowd or the clientele. Um, but this is one that seems to really go over well with just about anybody. Oh, it, yeah, it, it always does. It's, you know, it, it's also because we talked about it um, already um, with when, when we were talking about Rock the Casbah. Um, 
you know, they were about to lose a member of of the band, right? Um, because it, it's uh, I'm trying to see here in my notes. Was it Jones who ends up getting sacked? Yeah, Mick Jones. Yeah, that's what I thought. Um, a lot of people suggest that it almost that the Jones almost kind of knew that it was coming. Should I stay? Yeah, he denies know? that this is this is about his right. involvement in the yeah, clash. But but what I found is he was uh, the other thing too is that um, who was dating Ellen Foley? I'm trying to find. I think it was Mick yeah, Jones. It was Mick, yeah, yeah, Mick. yeah. Because Mick Jones, he was dating Ellen Foley. For those that don't know who that is, she she is the female um, singer who does the duet "Paradise by the Dashboard Light" with Meatloaf. She then went on to star in, in Night Court. Um, they were in a relationship, and the, it was a very rocky relationship. They actually end up breaking up not long after the song. So some people suggest that he wrote it about his relationship with Foley, but uh, others. See in my notes, I, I found it again and again. Some there's a lot of evidence that suggests he knew that he was about to get sacked from the band. So, either way, I mean, or maybe he was thinking of leaving the band. Well, know. that well, that's true too. Yeah, should I stay or should I go? But um, no, great choice, and it was an alternate. So I'm glad I didn't choose it. So you got anything else? To nope, say that, that's it. That just that's a great tune. All right, so before I. Before I go, do you do you want to name your last alternate? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I actually had two. Oh, two. Um, okay. And, and this was a crime knowing that I picked White Snake over these two songs. So let me, for the record, say that these two songs are better songs. Okay. Okay. Um, the first one was uh, "What's Love Got to Do with It" by Tina Turner. It's one of my alternates as well from Private Dancer. Yeah. Um, which you know, at the time, it's hard to believe this, but at the time, she was the oldest woman to chart at age forty-four. Yep. Which is, is, is nuts to me. And do you know um, in the video, Bruce Springsteen's sister appears in the video? Yeah, I, Pamela, I had heard Pamela that. Pamela Springsteen. She was she, in a lot of the Sleepaway Camp sequels in the 1980s. And she, she was actually she was in Fast, fast, fast Times. Richmond High, yeah. 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 Uh, the other song, this is a real crime. I'm kind of, no, I'm not regretting, but I, it's a great song. Is This Love by Bob Marley and the Wailers from 1978. <laughs> You went White Snake over both Tina Turner. I thought and, you would and be happy, Bob Marley. I thought you'd be happy because I went a hair band, and I never choose hair band. Okay, first of all, Tina is one of my alternates, and I'm not gonna. I I didn't choose her either, <laughs> but Marley. We have. I don't know if we've ever. Included all right, then, Marley. then I can switch it. Still, I can still reserve the right to switch it. <laughs> I'm not telling you to switch it. I just, I, especially given that you. Don't like hair. I know. I was just doing it to shock everybody. Okay. It was shock value. That's why I did it. (laughs) That's fair enough. No, leave it as is. I mean, we have an alternates playlist, so people can listen to Marley if they want to. And and then the thing is, this is this is Marley. This is a came out in '78, and um, you know he's obviously pretty political. And some people knocked him kind of for getting soft uh, at at this point of time. But he just, you know, he defended the summary carefree feel of the song by saying it was a testament to the good feelings he had at the time. And there really is a lot to say about it. And the fact that another little bit of trivia in the video, uh, seven-year-old Naomi Campbell appears. Really? Yeah, she's in the video. I didn't know that. But Um, those are my my two that I didn't choose. Such a crime. So you only had three. How'd you I had four, the contours. Oh, Oh, the contours. Yeah, you took that one from me. Okay. I always come with six. I always come with four. Really? Only yeah, four? only four. Okay. As many times as we've been matching lately, I would think... I've never you, run out before. Well, that's true. It's I've, I've come down to the last one before, <laughs> but I've never okay. run out. Well, all right. So here, here were mine. 
um, first of all, um, I had Ain't That a Shame by Fats Domino, um, which it's another one of those examples where I'm probably going to hell because (laughs) I did not, I mean, Fats Domino is, you know, when you're talking legendary icon, you know, he should probably come before anyone else, but say lovey. Um, Then I had uh, Where's My Mind by the Pixies, which, of course, you used. My Pixies. Huh? What? Not the Pixies, just, oh, oh. <laughs> just being a dick. <laughs> you really are. Because <laughs> I do, I mess it up all the time too. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, then I had What's Love Got to Do With It by Tina, um, which really, I mean, that one, I'm telling you what, that is probably the greatest comeback story oh, yeah. in, in, in the history of rock and roll, of, of popular music. I mean, but nonetheless, didn't, didn't pick her. Um, should I Stay or Should I Go uh, by The Clash, which, of course, you took. I had Who Will Save Your Soul by Jewel. And my last one was, where am I here? Um, Remember When the Music by Harry Chapin. Mm-hmm. Which, That's a good song. That one I, I really was hoping to get to, but I just, I... It, it, There's it, a good it, Springsteen cover of that song. I know, it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you only know, played it the one time, yeah. but it but it is a great cover. Um, but here is my last that I'm going with, and he's right there with Fats Domino, so I'm, I'm paying my, you know, paying my respects. My last one is by Ray Charles, and it is entitled "What I Say." Hmm. Yeah. It's from 1959, and is it, that a question technically? Mm-hmm. Is it? Yeah. He says, uh, "Yeah." I mean, okay. Especially, yeah, you guys. Yeah, okay. What I say now, what I say, yeah, it's yeah. Um, it is. Uh, let's see, 1959. It, it peaked at number six, um, and uh, let's see. I'm, some people separate the song into two parts. Sometimes, yeah, because it was side A and side B yeah, on the single because it was yeah, too long. Yeah, some people will say part one and part two, but but I mean, it's what you know. What I say. Um, in, in its entirety, it's not. They even stop. It, it's a kind of a mock uh, live performance, yeah. and so they kind of stop exactly. so you can yeah. turn the record exactly. over and continue yeah. it. Um, you know, Charles improvised this entire song on stage at a club in Brownsville, Pennsylvania. It was December 1958, and at that point, he had already played every song he knew, but he still had 12 minutes to fill on his contract. So he simply asked his band to follow his lead, which they did. He told his backing singers, which were called the Ray Lats, uh, to simply repeat whatever he said. And the singer uh, remembered, I mean, basically, um, Ray Charles said, I, I had sung everything I could think of, so I said to the guys, look, I'm going to start this thing off. I don't know where I'm going, so y'all just follow me. And I said to the girls, whatever I say, just repeat after me. So the story goes that at the end, the club goers literally gathered at Charles' feet begging for the tune's title so that they could buy the record. So predictably, the song was recorded with all due haste. Um, Ray Charles said he got the idea for this song from, quote, unquote, the sweet sounds of love. (laughs) Which you can kind of hear that, at least when he begins the call and response. But as for the call and response itself, that was inspired by church music. Which I mean, you want to talk about juxtaposition? No, yeah. All gospel it, there. Yeah, it was the, it was the church music that Charles grew up with. Uh, when the preacher said something, the congregation shouted it back. Well, what I say stands as the epitome of call and response in secular music, really. Uh, although he first made his mark with "I Got a Woman," 
this is the song that established Charles as a frontline star. It's, it's success at the end of his contract um, with Atlantic Records enabled him to sign a lucrative one with ABC Paramount, and the hits came quickly and furiously soon afterwards. Uh, when Charles recorded this, it was a very long song. Uh, engineer Tom Dowd edited it down finally to six and a half minutes. Now, when you think though, 1959, six and a half minutes is still a very it's like three songs long on the radio song. Yeah, so I I could not find how long it was on its original take, but I mean, it 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 made it sound as though you know the the sound engineer did amazing things to get it down that low. So I'm wondering, I mean, probably double maybe. I am I really don't know. Uh, Dowd eventually became a very well respected producer himself. He worked with the Allman Brothers, Derek and the Dominoes, Aretha Franklin, among many others. Along with Bebop Alula by Gene Vincent, this song is mentioned in the first line of Dire Straits' song, Walk of Life, because the line is, here comes Johnny singing oldies goldies, Bebop Alula, baby, what I say. And um, just as my, my final aside, um, the song is remembered... Um, maybe even much loved in part uh, because in 1975 John Belushi did a skit on Saturday Night Live where he played Beethoven at the piano. Oh yeah. (laughs) Uh, But he ends up rocking out to, of course, What I Say. That's my last pick, and I just thought it's a. I, oh, I love what I say, so it's a hell of a way to to close my list. No, great tune, much better than White Snake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I, I did. I loved my alternates too. So it was. I literally, I almost drew, you know, like you did for the animals. But um, there will come a day when I'll do that. I figured I don't want to do that, uh, you know, more than once, but. Yeah, this one was hard. And, and there were so many question songs I didn't even... I, I just kept cutting. I mean, like Marvin Gaye is an example. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There, I I bet I... Love and Spoonful I cut because we already used it last season, even though I technically could have used it. Do you believe in magic? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I was on there for a while. Oh, I, I had everything from Who But The Bomp and The Bomp, Bomp, Bomp. I, I love that song. Have you ever heard that yeah, song? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's, it's, I don't know. It makes me laugh every time. But I mean, I had... I had so many. I it just it was it was near impossible. Um, but that is a constant problem with me. You seem to have much greater ease at cutting. Well, I just I edit as I go. So as I think of songs, you know, I write them down. And if it's a song that I don't dig, I don't write it down. So okay, I usually end up with about forty on my first list, and then I have to pare it down. See, that's that's. 40 is usually my second time because the first thing I do is I just name every song I can think of and then I go through and start cutting get it done usually at about 
40, sometimes 50. And then, then I, I'm good until I get down to like 20. Because when I get down to 20, then it's like, it, it's torture. I, I kind of go by gut with like what I would want to hear right now. Is that how it is? So yeah. if there are songs I haven't heard in a while, I'm like, oh yes, I want to hear that again. <clears throat> the only exception to that was if your wife suggests that you do a White Snake song. <laughs> Which makes a good bit of sense. Not that she's not a White Snake fan either. I don't know why she said that. Huh. I think she was just thinking of question songs. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I did. I like. I've been waiting to get CCR on our on a mixtape for forever. I mean, and did, here did make our Halloween episode. No, Bad mm-hmm. Moon Rising didn't make no. it. Um, I, have, I put a spell I, on you. What is another one that would have fit from them? Yeah. Um, but I mean, like I had, I had Fortunate Son back when we did Fourth of July, I think. But it. it you, need, you know we need to do a rain episode because there are so many songs with rain in the title yeah. and you could do two Creedence songs there, right so. and they're both questions right. and in fact I even thought we could do a rainy days and Mondays episode we don't have to include the Carpenters but I mean think about oh, oh, yeah. the number of songs yeah. or we could do one for each quite frankly there are thousands songs of songs with days of the week yeah yeah. but rain yeah rain might be a definite one for next summer speaking of rain Next week, folks, we are providing a, another summer-themed episode. I know I'm going out of order. We haven't sequenced yet. I know, but it was a good lead-in. Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, I, we're not. It's not a rainy day. Uh, it's rather, rather, it's a very sunny day. We are we're going to do a summer-themed playlist because summer is here, and it is going to be all about the summer sun and those lazy, hazy, crazy days of summer. I don't plan on using that one, but uh, you know, if you're a Nat King Cole fan, there you go. Um, yeah, it's just going to be some, you know, the 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 warmth and the the beauty of a summer afternoon. So, um, I, I I've just been calling it summer days for now, which is. Do you have to use the word summer in the title, or can it just no, be the spirit of summer? Just anything okay. that, yeah, no, okay. I'm nothing title specific. Because I haven't even begun to look at my. Yeah, no, I'm not choices. doing anything title specific. It's just. You know, these are just summer songs. The, the rough thing that I, because I've already started thinking about it, I, I have some songs that remind me of summer that I'm cutting because I don't know why they remind me of summer. They just do, but they're not summer songs. So, yeah, the, all of my songs had to do with summer, but yeah, no, nothing title cool. specific or anything of that nature. So that's where we go next week, another summer themed uh, mixtape. But that was out of order. So let's do it in order uh, or try and get back. And we need to sequence these songs. All right. We'll be right back. And we're back. And like always, a bit of a challenge to sequence very eclectic uh, pieces of music. Yeah, this one was not one of the easier ones. Um, <laughs> but what we have works. I, it, I A lot of it on paper does not look like it should. <laughs> but but it, it, it works. Um so if you're ready, here here we go. Side A begins with What's the Frequency, Kenneth, by R.E.M. That leads into Should I Stay or Should I Go by The Clash, followed by Do You Know What I Mean by Lee Michaels, Is She Really Going Out With Him by Joe Jackson, What Have I Done to Deserve This by The Pet Shop Boys and Dusty Springfield, Into What Is Love by Hathaway, don't ya by the Pussycat Dolls. Into Do You Love Me by the Contours. Wouldn't It Be Nice by the Beach Boys. 
Does anybody really know what time it is by Chicago? What's up by the Four Non Blondes? And we end side A with Why Don't We Get Drunk by Jimmy Buffett. So we get to side B and we begin with Do You Believe in Love by Huey Lewis and the News. I'm going to call them Clover for like <laughs> the rest of time. Uh, previously, the artist previously known as Clover. Clover. Yeah. yeah. Um, do, do you know? Uh, I'm sorry. Let's. Uh, <laughs> do you believe in love? Let me, let me restart that one uh, by Huey Lewis and the News into Do You Really Want to Hurt Me? I was having a really hard time getting all that out. Uh, followed by, oh, do you really want to hurt me, of course, by Culture Club, into How Deep Is Your Love by the Bee Gees, uh, How Soon Is Now by the Smiths, into Do You Realize by the Flaming Lips, Is This Love by White Snake, into What's Going On by Marvin Gaye, then What I Say by Ray Charles, Who Are You by The Who, Are You Experienced by Jimi Hendrix, into Isn't It a Pity by George Harrison. And we end our mixtape with Where Is My Mind by the Pixies, which pretty much sums up, that title sums up all by its lonesome, what we just did, (laughs) what we just put together. So, And we're going to title it? I'm going to title it what's up what's up what's up (laughs) yeah we want the episode to be on the question not on Uh, love or something else right yeah so this one was I I still stand by by what I said earlier this one was fun and it it is all over the place though I mean it's this is a bizarre collection of music again though it hits that Gen X sweet spot you know we have some some older tunes and we have uh, some newer tunes right but uh, the bulk of it there is in, in the 70s 80s and 90s so yeah no it, it's I I would enjoy listening to it and that for me is always key um, we are done for another week and we will be back next week to celebrate the summer that is and a summer where restrictions are lifted COVID is not gone, but uh, it's no longer prohibitive, and we are free to actually enjoy, for the first time in a very long time, our summer months. So um, hopefully we'll give you a soundtrack to do that with. And until next time, we, we just hope that you have a great week, and we look forward to having you back with us. Hot next- funk, cool punk, even if it's old junk, another mix of memories awaits next week. But for now, press pause, lift that needle, and hit eject, and we will see you on the flip side. 